O God, who instructs the hearts of your faithful by the light of your Holy Spirit, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise and live as your people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have you noticed, like I have, that the Gospels and Epistles over the last few weeks are not focused at all on Jesus doing miraculous works like healing the blind or casting out demons? Two weeks ago, Jesus told Peter that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, signifying that there would be turbulence, even as Paul admonished us to be patterned after the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God rather than the vagaries of the world, because we are one body, each person with different gifts to offer. Then last week, Father Steve preached on Matthew 6. After Jesus rebuked Peter, he told his disciples that the way of life that he offered, if they wanted to truly be his followers, would require that they deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him. This is hardly an invitation to a life of ease, of independence, of self-entitlement and luxury. Becoming fashioned after the nature of Christ is so important that it bears repeating, for living together as the body of Christ is not simply independent entities, really does matter. Quite a while ago, as I was working on this, I was thinking, this sounds like the weeks before and the weeks before that, and when do we get to change and do something different? Then I was reminded of how somebody will tell you to do something until you kind of get it right. And I think in many ways, we're getting it right, we're getting it better, but perhaps, at least for me, I could use a little bit more work. So I ask your indulgence as we share in the scriptures as Jesus reminded his disciples yet again what the kingdom of God looks like, and we get to remember too. This particular passage begins after the disciples ask, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Of all that Jesus has already spoken to them, this remains foremost in their minds. Jesus, now what can I do to have more status and more power? I wonder if Jesus was frustrated or heartbroken, having walked with them for years and demonstrated that this new kingdom is about loving each other, serving each other, about being community, about being one body. But either they didn't get the heart of the message, and quite frankly, sometimes I don't get it either, and maybe sometimes you don't. So Jesus directed their attention to a child. Children didn't have the same status back then that they have now. There was no compulsory education for them. Children were under the direction of their father. They did not choose their clothes, location, or occupation. Their opinion carried no weight. They held a low and humble status in society. And Jesus said, we must change and become as a child. That's quite a transformation he is asking. He points that they are precious and the humility that they have and the need for care that children represent should be part of our walk with Christ as well. Each one is so precious that a shepherd would leave 99 sheep to find the one who had gone astray. 
and from the place of deep value for each person walking in the way of Christ, this passage emerges. The passage that we read in the gospel is often used as a guideline or judicial process for church discipline. Perhaps you've used it that way or even heard it misused. I have for many years that this was the way we can confront each other. And if they don't listen to us, bring somebody else along with you until you've made your point loud and clear and forced them to conform to your will. Can you imagine that sometimes Christians would act like that? Well, I've served the body of Christ for decades, and I have seen this play out. Perhaps some of you have as well. Now, I know it never happened here because we don't have carpet, but in other places, churches have split over the color or length of the carpet or a hello that was left unsaid. That when there are problems within the body of Christ, sometimes Christians, Christians, followers of the way of Jesus, would go to a friend to gossip or vent, take them to confront the other, or use a royal we, try triangulation or passive aggressiveness. Now, I'm thankful that that has never happened here, but should it ever happen, we know who we are. And then if it doesn't go well, we use this scripture as a basis for cutting them off as the despised, despicable tax collector that they've now become. A wound and a boil on society. However, that doesn't really align with treating each other as being precious that Jesus is offering us. So maybe there's another way to look at this passage. Rather than seeing it as justifying self-righteousness, the aim of the passage is to understand that we are not only individuals, but that we're one body, one very, very precious body, the body of Christ. And each one is precious, and each offers gifts. We're not all eyes, so we won't all see things the same way. We're not all noses, so we won't sense things the same way. But each one is precious. The aim of the passage is reconciliation, not ganging up against each other. It's about church discipline in that we may need leadership involvement in a spirit of unity and humility as we recognize that Jesus is in the midst of all of our relationships. That as the body of Christ, whenever two or three people get together, Christ is present, whether we recognize it or not. And that the person we're addressing is part of us. They are not apart from us. And they are equally precious in God's sight. And so are we. As Americans, we are a nation birthed in rugged individualism, independence, and autonomy. We are steeped in the concept of winners and losers, of getting ahead. We are less likely, just by our very culture, to see ourselves as intimately connected with each other. It is a very Western way of viewing the world, but it is not the only way. Because the scriptures were written from an Eastern perspective, where a person's dignity mattered. And so this passage seems more important than ever. Its aim is reconciliation within the body of Christ as we rub up against one another. 
for conflict even among the deeply beloved saints of the Most High God is nothing new. One of the prayers we pray each night at Compline reminds us that God's unfailing providence sustains the world in which we live and the life we live. We ask God to watch over those who, both, who work both night and day while others sleep and grant that we may never forget that our common life depends upon each other's toil. But the constant barrage we hear each day about our rights, the challenges we face reintegrating into a society following the times we've had alone with COVID, the exaggerated sense of entitlement and fear of others that has permeated our society, this one prayer seems hardly big enough to remind us of that interconnectedness. But it offers us a daily refreshing antidote to the self-centered way of the world where loving Christ-centeredness would be our example. As we go to each other in loving, humble manners, seeking not to point out the faults of each other as our end game, to prove ourselves right, but rather recognizing that our differences enrich, enrich us and that reconciliation and restoration of relationship as we're interconnected as the body of Christ with differing viewpoints can occur. As Episcopalians, this is part of our DNA. We hold the centrality of scripture as our foundation and incorporate tradition, reason, and experience. We have history of the Elizabethan settlement that tempered religious bloodshed in England, and we seek a via media, a middle way between two distinct and differing places. Negotiations can be uncomfortable, but important disagreements are part of our gift to Christianity and to the world, and learning how to navigate them well is part of what makes us Episcopalians. We are all called to develop it on a large scale and small scale in our relationships. In a world filled with disrespect, grudges, unforgiveness, and triangulation, Christ demonstrated by his life, death, and resurrection that there is a better way, and that often matters can be resolved. But when they cannot, Jesus said that they can be to us as a Gentile or tax collector. On the surface, that recognizes that the relationship has become strained and broken, that we have othered the one with whom we struggle. So can we now kick out these despicable tax collectors or Gentiles who do not follow our way? On the surface, that seems like it's the case. And if so, then I think we should be free to gossip about them. Uh, your laughter tells me that perhaps not, that's not the way of the cross. Again, we look to Jesus and his life as our model. How did Jesus respond to these people? Matthew 9 gives us a clear picture of what Jesus does with tax collectors. He doesn't cut them off. He doesn't gossip about them. He doesn't even call them whitewashed sepulchers. But he leans into the relationship with them. He calls them to his side. He eats dinner with them. Even at the risk of those who are in power to criticize him, Jesus continues to associate with them. His words recognized the brokenness that needed healing and offered mercy, investing in the relationship 
and not walking away. That is what walking the way of Jesus is all about. We are a people who have chosen a different way of being in the world that we regularly affirm in our baptismal covenant. And it can be hard, really hard. And it can also be beautiful. And it can be transformative. And we're reminded that we don't do this by ourselves, but that Jesus is with us in the process. We are never alone. Even as we meet together, just two or three of us, in relationship with each other, Christ is there with us. Just as children are precious to God, so each and every one of us are precious. We need to receive care, and we need to offer care. And this remains the kingdom of Christ that God is calling us to represent in the world around us. And as society becomes more hostile, our gentleness and care will be even more distinct. So maybe that's the real miracle. Amen.